you know, I don't think too much of the billable hour. Uh, but uh, by the same token, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, as uh, it was, uh, was it Mark Twain said, uh, you know, let's not be too quick about uh, uh, talking about my demise. I, I'm not sure that we can realistically assume that uh, after 50 years that somehow the uh, the billable hour uh, legacy is going to be broken so quickly. This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from normally sunny Southern California. It's raining today. Um, Just to let you know, we're in the running for the Reader's Choice balloting for the best podcast in the ABA Journal's Blog 100. You can vote for Lawyer to Lawyer by going to the link to vote on the Legal Talk Network site, or you could go to the abajournal.com under blogs and vote for us. And I would just uh, mention that just this morning, uh, Craig, I noticed that Dennis Kennedy's annual Bloggy Awards has uh, once again given us an award for Best Legal Podcast, uh, tied this year with uh, Denise Howell's This Week in Law, which uh, uh, is, a, is a worthy uh, a worthy pairing indeed. But uh, thanks to Dennis Kennedy for recognizing our blog. Well, for about 50 years, uh, the billable hour has been the dominant feature of the legal profession. The billable hour, by definition, is the tracking of the workday in in intervals, often uh, six-minute intervals, the standard billing system used by big law firms. The American Bar Association uh, has sounded the official alarm on the billable hour back in 2002, saying the profession's obsession with billable hours is like drinking water from a fire hose. That was actually Justice Stephen Breyer who said that in the forward to the ABA report. And the result is that many lawyers are starting to drown. Well, Bob, it's also been coined by some as the cockroach of the legal world, making many argue that the quality of time is not quantity and uh, how a client views the value of the time. So we need to ask ourselves in these hard economic times, will a billable hour become extinct? And what does this mean as far as competition goes amongst lawyers and law firms? Will there be a loss of clients if the billable hour sticks around? Will these lawyers, in fact, drown? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about the uh, uh, perhaps death of the billable hour, the predicted death. Some people predict it's dying. Uh, and uh, talk about uh, what the reaction from is from the legal community toward the billable hour and look ahead to see what the trends might be coming down the pike. Joining us today is our guest, Attorney Stuart Weltman from the Weltman Law Firm. Until recently, Stuart Weltman was a partner with the nationally known plaintiff's complex litigation firm, Cohen, Milstein, Housefield, and Toll. In January 2007, Mr. Weltman formed the Weltman Law Firm. Over the last 28 years, he's been lead and uh, lead trial counsel in numerous complex litigation matters for both plaintiffs and defendants, ranging from antitrust to counting malpractice, legal malpractice, securities fraud, patent issues, contract actions, and consumer fraud. And he also, like us, has his own blog entitled Lean and Mean Litigation Blog. Welcome to the show, Stuart Weltman. Uh, how you doing? Great. 
Well, thanks for being on the show today, but um, can you kind of give us a rundown of what the pros and cons are of on the billable hour? <laughs> well, that uh, that could take a, 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 a while. I, I, I like uh, most people, uh, don't think there are too many pros to the billable hour. Uh, much of my legal career I've spent trying to avoid uh, having to work on a billable basis, a billable hour basis, because um, I think it's actually non-economic for both uh, the attorney involved, uh, myself or, or my firm, and uh, my clients. So, um, you know, I don't think too much of the billable hour, uh, but uh, by the same token, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, as uh, it was, uh, was it Mark Twain said, uh, you know, let's not be too quick about uh, uh, talking about my demise. I, I'm not sure that we can realistically assume that uh, after 50 years that somehow the uh, the billable hour uh, legacy is going to be broken so quickly. You had an article uh, published in the ABA litigation section uh, not long ago in which the, the title of the article was Rising Legal Costs Don't Mean Rising Quality. Uh, are you suggesting that, that the cost of a lawyer's services don't necessarily reflect the quality of a lawyer's services? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think you know the, the, that particular article was a l- little bit of my venting on on the whole whole deal because I I, I think um, I I personally have uh, great concern for where our profession is going um, with the billable hour as the touchstone and um, I think we're starting to see some of that unfortunate shakeout uh, in the. In, in the last six months, I think since that article has been written, though, with the economy turning down, uh, this uh, it's sort of like the dot-com bubble burst on a lot of the larger law firms over the last uh, six, seven months in terms of ever increasing their, you know, their hours uh, times their hourly rates. Uh, and um, and I think it's unfortunate, actually, when we've seen the shakeouts in these firms because, again, I, I just think the, the whole culture built around um, – ever-increasing billable hours uh, is an economic model that's uh, destined to, to, to fail at some point in time. I uh, do a fair amount, have done a fair amount of antitrust work, worked with a lot of economists. I have, I'm not going to say I'm an economic expert, but uh, where your profit model is built on, uh, on solely expanding the amount of hours you bill times your hourly rates at some point in time, the market's going to collapse on you. Uh, and that's the, the, the real problem I see there. How do you bill your clients, Stuart? Well, I, I, I always start off by proposing uh, that we try to work out some contingent arrangement. And, and that's either whether they're a plaintiff or a defendant. Uh, I, think, um, I think with respect to plaintiff's cases, um, I don't believe I have accepted a plaintiff's case on an hourly basis uh, for probably over 20 years. I don't think it's economic for anybody was a plaintiff in a case, in a commercial case, uh, particularly, uh, wh- how, no matter how big it is. Uh, let's assume you're, you know, uh, one of the, uh, you know, Fortune 100 companies, and you've got a billion-dollar case. Uh, you should still hire your lawyers on a, on a contingent basis. And I don't care who they are. I mean, you, know, the, you, you may want to hire the, the creme de la creme. They're willing to work on a contingent basis. Believe me. Uh, but you know that doesn't also mean you know when somebody says contingency that it's automatically a one-third contingency. You know you can sit down with your counsel and evaluate it and, and decide that well you know this case uh, it's got so much involved that uh, maybe fifteen uh, percent contingency or a, a stage contingency is uh, is possible. 
And then on the defense, you know, uh, defense side, um, uh, blended hourly plus, uh, you know, result-orientated uh, contingencies uh, geared towards uh, uh, certain result points. Uh, that's, you know, actually been pioneered by uh, uh, some good friends of mine out of uh, Houston and Dallas, Texas, uh, the Sussman Godfrey firm, who I've done a lot of work with over the years. But I, I believe Steve Sussman was the first one to actually ever... Um, Come up with the idea, and they've been they've been you know, using it well when they do defend cases. How do you take a contingency of zero, which is what a successful defense case is? Well, uh, again, you on the defense side, uh, yeah, zero would be a marvelous contingent result uh, because uh, what you do, if I can explain a little further, is let's assume uh, just hypothetically our hourly rate is five hundred dollars an hour. Uh, let's assume that you agree to bill uh, at 250 uh, throughout the case, uh, and then you have um, various. You agree with the client uh, up front for various result-oriented um, contingencies. Let's assume that the, the, the case has 100 million dollars of liability exposure, and both sides come to an agreement that that happens. That that's, that they agree that that's what the, the exposure is, a realistic assessment, then let's say you uh, come up with zero, you can work out a contingency arrangement where let's say you get a 10% result-orientated uh, contingency, uh, whatever it might be. I mean, you, obviously, that's, it's a case-by-case analysis, but you build in these contingencies. Let's assume you uh, get the case uh, dismissed on a motion to dismiss. You get a different type of result-oriented contingency. Uh, get it dismissed on a summary judgment motion. You, know, you get at trial, whatever it might be, you, you work out an arrangement that, uh, that uh, creates an economic incentive for your defense counsel or for the defense counsel to resolve the case as best as possible for the client and make it in their economic interest to do so. When you have a case that uh, is a $100 million case like that, don't you have to refer the client to a another attorney to help them make the analysis of how much the case is actually worth since your economic interest is different than the client's at that point? Well, that's an interesting question. Generally speaking, these types of fee arrangements uh, are, are negotiated where there are in-house counsel involved. But you're, you're, you're spot on. It, it, you will, in essence, in, in essence have to have uh, the client have lawyers representing them in the fee negotiation process. Uh, and... Uh, you know, generally speaking, when it's, when the cases are that you know that big, then you're going to have in-house counsel. How you would do it on a smaller case or on a case where there is no in-house counsel, I, I agree. There, there would you would have to have somebody representing them, unless they're just willing to negotiate with you. I mean, you know, it, with with the full disclosure that you know at this point in time you are in somewhat of an adverse uh, position in terms of uh, the negotiations, but um, you know the. <laughs> That is far better, uh, as far as I'm concerned, than the uh, the uh, the other option, which is uh, the hourly rate. Because then, uh, as a defense lawyer, uh, again, and and I, I, you know, everybody who you know I've encountered who's worked on an hourly basis on the defense side, you know, I don't think they they've been honorable and, and so forth. But there is an economic incentive that uh, a disincentive for the case to end soon. That's for sure. So you know, there's there's this. In terms of conflicts, there's this. You bring in a. You're you're the lawyer that brings in a big defense case. 
there is an it's not in your economic self-interest for it to uh, be dismissed at a motion to dismiss. I see that part of your practice is working as a consultant uh, to law to uh, in-house legal departments on litigation management. Uh, the, the surveys I see consistently say that in-house counsel are concerned about fees up to a point, and, and once you get to those so-called bet-the-company cases, their fees no longer really even factor into the hiring choice. But when I talk to in-house counsel, it seems that more and more fees aren't factoring into it on on the less than bet the company cases that that reliability and trustworthiness and results are more important than than the fee structure to a lot of these lawyers what what are you seeing and, and is that the right approach well you know look if um i disagree with some of the premises that the in-house counsel that you're quoting or at least uh, paraphrasing uh are asserting um but uh, you know uh, my you know most of my experiences in, has been in conducting seminars with in-house counsel and attendants and uh you know i i think the surveys show i think great dissatisfaction with the costs that are, they're being charged at this point in time uh, i i agree there is a there's a degree of inertia um when it comes to actually uh, putting, uh, you know, the foot to the pedal, so to speak, in terms of really reining in costs. But by the same token, there are some very heavyweight in-house uh, general counsel who are creatively, uh, are on the, let's say, the cutting edge and are creatively approaching uh, uh, fee reduction and are being successful at it. And I think that um, as more in-house counsel uh, see these examples uh, that uh, I think costs will begin to, to be reined in, even in the bet the company cases, because that's where costs can get out of control sometimes. And uh, I, I like to cite the example of the Vioxx case um, where Merck you know, and his in, the in-house counsel did a great job uh, in bringing that case to a conclusion uh, at a level that was far below what People expected, I think, when the when the mass actions were filed against Merck on Viax, the estimates were in excess of fifteen billion dollars in legal exposure, and uh, they took a very proactive approach and actually, as I like to say, took a page out of the plaintiff's playbook and forced all these plaintiffs to trials, and they won, I think, twelve out of the seventeen trials, and that brought uh, a settlement of around five point four billion dollars, which is still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But they, everybody, I think, uh, in, in the legal communities who, was, who were watching this thought that was a tremendous result. But then uh, I also read, in connection with the, the announcement of the settlement, that they had spent $2 billion in defending the case. Uh, and that sort of took me back a little bit. And uh, maybe that was an example of uh, what you just said, where it was a bet-the-company case where they looked at costs as, you know, not being an object. But when when they can almost almost behalf of what you end up settling, uh, uh, I think in retrospect, I'm sure they could have at least saved 5 to 10% of their legal costs there. And uh, that's not, uh, you know, pocket change when you're talking 100 to $200 million. Right. And I, I don't mean to suggest that corporate counsel aren't looking at costs, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that in a number of conversations I've had with in-house lawyers, not even necessarily the top lawyers, when you ask them what their outside 
uh, council are charging for hourly rates, they'll often tell you, I have no idea. They're on our preferred providers list. Uh, they're the ones we call when we have this kind of an issue, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's almost hard to generalize at this point in time. There are certainly... Um, and and they and, and they may be on a preferred provider list because general general counsel has cut a deal with them. I I, I don't know, you know. Right. But if it's, if you're talking to general counsel, and they just say, well, those are the firms we've done business with for the last thirty years or the last forty years, and that's the reason we're hiring them. You know, there's the general counsel that doesn't really care about costs. Um, that's the only answer you can provide. And you know what? If if a general counsel isn't concerned. But that's just, you know, maybe that's the board has directed them, that's who we hire, we don't care what it costs, then there's a general counsel who's got an easy job when it comes to litigation costs, at least. But, uh, you know, that's not what, you know, obviously when I conduct seminars and, you know, they're in-house counsel from some of the, you know, top 500 companies in the country there, that's not what I'm hearing, but of course they're coming to my seminar. <laughs> So obviously, it's a seminar on, on reining in litigation costs. So by definition, they're concerned about it. So we hear we hear from different sources, I guess. You know, as a defense lawyer, I don't think I'm very good at picking contingency cases. And uh, to me, it seems somewhat difficult to predict the outcome of a case. How does a lawyer that has a difficult time with that uh, pick an hourly or pick a, a fee structure that that fits along the, the ramifications that you've identified? Well, I mean, you've hit on a, on, a, on a, uh, something that I think um, is a, uh, a ripe topic. I've also written on that for for law firms. I've, um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, defense lawyers who have not done contingent matters as part of their regular practice are at somewhat of a disadvantage when it comes to first internally assessing what the uh, contingent value of a case is, and and then in, in how to manage it. Um, and uh, it, it really, it really depends. Uh, I don't know what your particular professional circumstances are. Whether you know, because we haven't spoken about you, whether you're in a large firm or a small firm or a medium-sized firm. But it, it, in this transitional phase, and I do believe it is a transitional phase, because I, I do believe that uh, contingency is going to be a, a, a greater alternative fee arrangement. Uh, I think the best answer is your your, your immediate uh, solution is to get somebody on your team who knows how to do that. Uh, uh, you know, from my discussions with uh, both friends and opponents at uh, the larger firms, who are some of the you know Amlaw, you know, 100 firms who are all, I think, at least a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them are looking at contingency. That's one of their biggest problems: is is how to evaluate the contingency, how to evaluate a case, uh, case acceptance, and then you know I've heard nightmare stories of uh, case management after that. That uh, Again, where the firm culture is built around how many hours you bill, uh, <laughs> they look at contingencies as sort of this nice place to dump all their billable hours. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, the answer to, the, to your question is, as a defense lawyer, how do I assess a contingency case is that you've got to learn how to do it, and the only way you can learn how to do it is, one, by doing it, but two, also, by learning from somebody who knows how to do it. So that means, you know, some cultural changes maybe uh, for firms. They may have to bring in contingent lawyers. These days, if if a large firm or some firm who doesn't do contingency is being asked to start doing it with their clients, uh, uh, the worst thing they can do is to do it. Uh, think that they can somehow evaluate it on their own. Uh, I, from what what I've seen, they have big problems doing it. Uh, so, 
I think that means they have to bring in some some people who have done it for a while to help them help them through both in evaluating the case and in running the case. Isn't part of evaluating a case, you know, simply getting as much information as you can about the case in the beginning, trying to understand uh, and do your due diligence about the value of the case? Well, you know, I think, you know, first off, we have to talk about this, assuming that we're operating at a very high level, uh, you know, that, that the, the people who are evaluating this uh, have, have tried cases and understand, you know, uh, what, it, what it takes. Uh, the answer to your question, the short answer to your question is, of course, yes. The more information you can get at the beginning is always better. I don't care which side you're on, plaintiff or defendant side. Uh, that sometimes is not always possible, okay? So what you have to do is, you know, uh, what I've written about and what I lecture about is that no matter what, you know, your information is, you start off by evaluating how am I going to try this case. To me, that's the first question I ask in my head when I look at a case at the very beginning. What do we have? What don't we have? And what are we going to need? And to me, I actually, you know, advocate after you've brought all that, all you you know that you immediately know in you know, your initial case evaluation, I like to try to articulate an opening statement within a, a minute or two. What is this case about? And then I evaluate it. How am I going to prove that case? I look at the jury instructions if it's going to be a jury trial. And I then map out a course and I try to figure out what I'm going to need and what I have. That's, you know, sounds pretty basic. It's, it seems to me that any lawyer should, should be doing that. But plaintiff's lawyers have been doing it for years. I mean, the good ones. I'm not, I'm not saying somebody just takes any case and just goes, runs with it. The high level plaintiff's lawyers that I've worked with over the years, and I've, I like to say that I'm sort of like the Forrest Gump of lawyers, I've had the pleasure of co trying and co counseling with some of the finest plaintiff's trial lawyers in the country. That's what they do. You know, they, they sit down and assess. And it may be that you, you don't have answers to everything at the beginning, but then that's where the art comes in in assessing the value and the contingency and whether or not the case is worth bringing. There have been some indications that uh, companies are beginning to outsource to consulting firms instead of law firms or somehow using uh, lesser-priced uh, either attorneys or you know, perhaps even going over to India. What do you, what do you hear about that? Well, I mean, you know, I, certainly I think uh, we've all heard about the outsourcing uh, outside the country. I, I personally think it's crazy. Uh, uh, I just, it, it's first off, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an uncontrolled variable. I'm not sure what are they outsourcing out there. Um, the companies I've spoken to, uh, at most they outsource review of documents that are most likely or 99% likely chaff. Um, but if if uh, if we're talking about outsourcing one either you know basic and I can only speak for litigation you know uh, basic document review where you're looking at first cuts and stuff like that uh, for substantive issues that uh, you know for documents that relate to the key issues in the case I think it's uh, I think it's crazy. Now there are also obviously as you know uh, inshore uh, contracting services where they uh, will amass large groups of uh, contract lawyers to do document reviews. Uh, that's less objectionable to me. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I have yet to, to participate in those because, frankly, uh, uh, most of the cases that I uh, have run and led have been plaintiff's cases. 
And we, uh, on the plaintiff's side, uh, view document review as perhaps the most important thing in the case. And uh, we, we generally like to have lawyers who are accountable uh, doing it. But I do know that many, many large companies in, in massive document review cases will contract out uh, to insure contracting services. And that they've had, uh, I think, fairly decent results from that. Let's take a short break right now in the program. We'll be back in a few minutes to uh, talk more with Stuart Weltman about the billable hour. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. You've just passed the bar and you're ready for your first day at the firm. If you always wear a blue suit, white shirt, and red tie, nobody will know you haven't been home in three days. You are ready to tackle the important legal questions. I don't worry about the merits of a case. I'm paid solo to find obscure procedural roadblocks. You are ready to find self-worth in your profession. The value of my existence is measured in six-minute increments. And the Perfect Associate has the answers to all your career questions. Available at PerfectPlush.com. PerfectPlush.com, your source for legal humor. That's PerfectPlush.com. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Attorney Stuart Weltman from the Weltman Law firm and Stuart, I wanted to ask you uh, about how the size of the firm plays into all this. Uh, you you are a proponent not only of alternatives to the the billable hour, but you're you're in a somewhat of an alternative form of practice uh, in, in that you are a, a solo practitioner. You worked with a boutique litigation firm before. We all know that uh, there's at least an appearance that that the in-house counsel uh, often prefer the the uh, there's a tendency to go with the larger firms, the uh, the, the CYA firms, as, as they tend to be known. Uh, how does that play into the value that firm that the in-house counsel are getting for their dollar? Well, you know, I'm actually probably going to be joining a little larger firm soon, but that's it's still going to be a small boutique. But uh, there's look, if we're talking about in-house counsel uh, in the you know the Fortune 500 companies. Um, it's the exception rather than the rule that uh, they'll hire uh, somebody like me. I've actually was when I was on my own before I uh, went with uh, with uh, Cohen Milstein uh, was retained by a Fortune 500 company and and was retained again um, for their for plaintiffs matters, large plaintiffs matters, uh, you know, seventy million, uh, one seventy million, one was twenty million, um, and handled them on my own. Um, and uh, at least the first one I did, and uh, and the point being is that they were very comfortable with with hiring me because they knew who I was, 
And uh, but generally speaking, uh, you know, you're correct. You know, the general counsel are always going to try to go with a firm that uh, the uh, if if the board uh, questions them, uh, then they're going to uh, you know be able to come back to them and say you know hey. Uh, we hired so and so firm, and they're you know one of the ham law one hundred firms. I mean, those firms are, are built on the structure of the billable hour. I mean, it's hard yeah, for them to diverge yeah. from that. Yeah. So uh, you know, the, the question is, you know, are solo practitioners or, or small firms going to expect to be hired by um, by uh, Fortune five hundred companies? Generally speaking, they aren't. Although I think the Fortune five hundred companies are. Uh, sometimes I make a mistake. I shared a panel with a um, uh, general um, in-house counsel from uh, from one of the large Fortune 500 recently, and he told me actually, quite surprisingly, that they were now doing most of their plaintiffs' work on contingent, and that they looked to uh, smaller firms. So, you know, uh, I think this really sort of reduces to my view on litigation in general, and. My view, and I've written on this, is that you know, I don't care how big the case is, and we're just talking like, let's say, an individual case, not a mass tort case where there's you know 4,000 individual cases all over the country, but let's say there's an individual case. Um, I think the maximum amount that you should allow to work on a case, there should be a presumption that it would be no greater than five lawyers. I don't care what the amount is. Uh, you, you can tell me the amount is uh, you know $10 million. Uh, if it's an individual case, uh, I think the best manageable amount of lawyers is no greater than five, but can be less than that, even when the amounts are big. And I think this is the biggest, uh, let's say, uh, marketing canard that's uh, come out of uh, the advent of complex litigation over the 30 years that I've practiced, is that somehow as the amount increases in, in, in liability or in recovery, uh, the litigation team has to exponentially um, uh, grow. I, you know, I, I can tell you quite honestly. I tried cases when I was a young lawyer involving, uh, you know, uh, uh, a simple uh, covenant running with the land uh, that were far more complicated than antitrust cases I've tried later in my career. Um, uh, and and uh, that little covenant case probably was you know involved a hundred thousand dollars, and the antitrust case uh, ended up in a jury verdict of one hundred fifty million dollars. So uh, the, my point is is that uh, you know. Uh, the concept that you have to hire a big law firm because you're going to get more lawyers is, is really, uh, you know, is, is I think, a, a, a false premise. I think that the key issue is hiring quality lawyers. And we all know that that turns on the individual lawyers you're hiring, be they in a big or a small firm. So what do you think it means in terms of um, timing on the bill, on the, on these alternatives for billable hours? Do you think we're going to start seeing it? Is what kind of percentage penetration is it hit in the market? Well, that's something that I'm completely ignorant about because uh, that, that's something that, you know, the, the big surveys, the big, you know, consulting firms uh, seem to be, you know, it, there's no doubt about it that there's a trend toward it. And I think, frankly, with the economic downturn, there's going to be even a greater trend. And mind you, uh, the, the only alternative isn't just contingency. Um, I, I shared a panel with a, with a, uh, in-house counsel who was achieving tremendous results using what he described as the Eversheds model, which is a model out of a, a law firm, I guess, in Great Britain, where uh, the client and the law firms have an understanding that, let's say, you know, this is this piece of litigation that's going to cost about 
a million dollars to defend, let's assume, okay? And so they cap it at a million, but they just don't cap it. They, um, if the firm brings the case in, terminates it for whatever reason, by reason of an acceptable settlement or summary judgment or motion to dismiss, and they don't bill, let's say, a million, they bill 600, that they get a uh, uh, result, a uh, uh, percentage of what they saved from the cap. So there are a whole, a whole lot, you know, a lot of different ways to approach this thing. Obviously, that's still geared to the, to the billable hour because you're now billing against the cap, and if you come in under the cap, then you get a percentage of what you've saved. Um, but uh, you know, there, the, 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 it's going to be a slow slog. But I think that um, alternative fee arrangements are are the future for the legal practice. Stuart, we've reached the end of our program, and we'd like to get your final thoughts and wrap things up and also get your contact information uh, for our listeners so that they can reach you if they have more questions about this. And and one of the things that we'd like you to address in in your final thoughts is uh, what type of uh, abuses or problems arise out of alternative billing arrangements? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, You know, and, and again... Uh, my experiences could only be anecdotal, uh, and that is personal. Uh, and I'm not aware uh, of, of abuses from alternative fee arrangements. I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think uh, I've read uh, articles. You know, look, let's, uh, there was one I just read where somebody, some New York law firm took a contingency fee case uh, and settled it within a month and demanded a $40 million fee. Uh, for very, very little work. Uh, you know, the, the contingency contract was negotiated, obviously, where they, where they were entitled to that. Uh, to me, if that had happened in, in, my, in my particular situation, obviously I wouldn't demand uh, $40 million for 100, 100 hours worth of work or whatever. But um, I, I don't, you know, as long as the alternative arrangement is negotiated with, you know, at arm's length, I don't think there can be abuses, except, of course, uh, the, the ones that, could happen normally, uh, or abnormally, hopefully, uh, where lawyers don't do their job. You know, uh, but that's, uh, it's assumed uh, that you're going to, you know, when I'm talking here, we're assuming we're dealing with, you know, above board, uh, honorable and ethical lawyers. Um, so uh, I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see whether the, there's ways that uh, unscrupulous lawyers can abuse the arrangements. Uh, I'm, I'm not really aware of very many. And Stuart, how can our listeners uh, follow up with you if they'd like to get back in touch well, with you? Well, uh, currently, uh, you can either uh, uh, contact me uh, uh, at the following numbers, uh, 312-504-1988 or 312-606-8756 or contact me by email. It's sweltman, W-E-L-T-M-A-N, at weltmanlawfirm.com. And, and can you say where you're going to be going soon, or is that uh, still well, in the um, pocket? Well, I'm in discussions with a couple of uh, firms. Okay. Right now, so. <laughs> okay. And you write the Lean and Mean Litigation blog, which is leanlitigation.typepad.com. Well, thanks a lot for being with us today. We really appreciate your thoughts and your time. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, just a reminder to our listeners that uh, they can go to abajournal.com and cast their vote for uh, lawyer to lawyer in the podcast category and the competition that's going on there. And a very special thanks to our guest, Stuart Welton, for being with us today. And uh, we will be talking to you again next week. You can find all of our lawyer-to-lawyer shows on iTunes and uh, on the Legal Talk Network. Talk to you next week, Craig. Thanks. Thanks, Bob.
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.